Would you join me this evening for the preaching in Acts chapter 4? As we are transitioning into the summer, of course, we had Vacation Bible School this past week. And then the next two Sunday nights after tonight, we'll have a couple of guest speakers. Next Sunday evening, we'll be privileged to have Pastor Joe Shakur from Tabernacle Baptist here to preach with us. And also our missionary Kevin Jones will be with us to give us an update on the work that God is doing in their family and ministry. And then two weeks from tonight, Pastor John Utley of Pleasant Plains Baptist Church in Apex will be with us to preach. I'm looking forward to having them here, and I know you'll receive a blessing. Acts chapter 4, this passage is one of the favorite passages in the Word of God for me. A verse that I have often referred to as my life verse is found here in this chapter of Scripture. And we'll be considering what takes place after the verse where my life verse is found. But this passage really spans back in reality to the ascension of Christ found in Acts chapter 1. There, remember, Jesus commissioned his disciples to be his witnesses. He ascended to heaven. They went back to Jerusalem to await the promise of the Holy Spirit, which came in Acts chapter 2. And then the day of Pentecost took place, where Peter preached, and the miracle of every man hearing the preaching in his own language happened, and 3,000 souls were saved and added to the church. And from that point on, God added to the church daily those who would be saved. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer. To pray, to praise. And on their way in, they're stopped by a lame man who is begging. And Peter says, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I have I'll give you in the name of Jesus. Rise and walk. And the man stood on his feet. He began walking, and people around wondered at what had just taken place. And Peter again has the privilege of preaching. And so often we focus on the day of Pentecost 3,000 saved. But as Peter preaches after healing this lame man, 5,000 come to know Christ. The Sanhedrin, who just weeks earlier had crucified Jesus for the same kind of ruckus, now take Peter and John, imprison them overnight. And the next morning they question them. They're put on trial much like Jesus was. By whose authority do you do this? And Peter preaches Jesus to the Sanhedrin. And from that point, the Sanhedrin takes counsel together and determines to threaten Peter and John to no more preach or teach in the name of Jesus and to send them on their way. And that's where we pick up now in Acts chapter 4. The response and subsequent events give us great insight into the workings of the early church. And there are some truths here that if you and I can understand, if we can grasp, it will revolutionize our lives and our church. 
when my oldest daughter, Brooklyn, was about four years old, we went to a park in an afternoon and just took some time to let the children we had then play and enjoy the time outside. And they were swinging on the swings, climbing up the playground and sliding down the slides. And Brooklyn and Evelyn were the two at the time, and they're engaged in in those activities. But at this playground, there was a a, a set of stairs that was a type of ladder and, and a rock climb to reach the top. And Brooklyn was engaging that. She was challenging herself to get up that rock wall and to ascend the playground. And on one of her trips up, she called out to me with this question. Remember, she's four at the time. Brooklyn calls out to me and says, Daddy, can you see my muscles coming through? And I I just laughed. Can you see my muscles coming through? My four-year-old asking me this question. As we look at Acts chapter 4 today, what I see in this passage is God. You, You know, don't you, that we have a great God. We serve a great God. We give, we give mental assent to that statement. But I want to ask you very pointedly today. Yes, we have a great God. But do we see him coming through? I don't want to just know that I have a great God. I want to see my great God coming through in my life, in my family, in my ministry, in our church. I want to see him coming through. Let's read about the experience of the early brothers and sisters in Christ here in Acts chapter 4. After the events that I've described briefly, here's what takes place. Acts 4 beginning in verse 23. And being let go, that's Peter and John, let go, they went to their own company. They, they went and met with their brothers and sisters, the church, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they, the church, heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with all the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart 
and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. In the passage of Scripture, we see that the early church had a great God. Not just in a way that we can say, yes, I know that I have a great God, but we see him coming through. We see him making himself known in his people, for his people, and through his people. And as we consider this passage for a little while this evening, I want you to see three experiences of Christians who see their great God coming through. Three experiences that you and I can have when we see our great God coming through. Number one is this, great prayer. Great prayer. When Peter and John came back to the assembly of the believers and testified about what they experienced, what they had done in healing this lame man and preaching the name of Christ and people coming to say to, to salvation, what the Sanhedrin had done and taking them and imprisoning them overnight, what they had said when questioned by the Sanhedrin and what the Sanhedrin had said. Don't teach or preach anymore in the name of, of Jesus. What was the response of the early church? Did you notice it? Look at it again there in verse number 24. And when they heard that, they what? They lifted up their voice to God with one accord. What do we call that when we lift up our voice to God, when we cry out to God, when we talk to God, communicate with God? What do we call that? That's prayer. This church, when faced with this trial, this difficulty, they prayed to God what made this prayer so great? I want you to see, first of all, what made this prayer great was their accord. Do you see that here in the text? It says, when they heard that, they lifted up their what? Voice. Now, when you see that, if you're a English scholar or a grammarian, you would say that's not subject agreement there, that there's a problem there. It, it should say they lifted up their voices to God. 
But then the following phrase explains to us why the Holy Spirit of God inspired the penmen to use the singular voice. It's because when they lifted up their voice to God, they did so how? With one accord. Well, what does that mean? This is unity. This is with one mind and one heart. Singularly focused on the mission of Jesus Christ. There was no dissent or hint of contention or conflict about them. They prayed with a unity befitting the bride of Christ. Friends, we cannot underestimate the effectiveness of unified prayer. Prayer is effective. God loves to hear and answer the prayers of his children. But I would say to you tonight that the Bible puts an emphasis, especially in the church, on this idea of unified prayer. Of the body of Christ gathering together, lifting up our voice, our voices as one voice to God in unity to pray to him. Listen to what Jesus said about this. Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 to 20. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be bound Again I say to you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Did you catch the promise that Jesus made in that text? That if two of you agree on earth concerning what? Anything. It will be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Friends, I don't know about you, but that speaks to me about the necessity of unified prayer. When God's children raise their voices as one voice to God to pray to Him. On the flip side, division, schisms within the body create ineffective prayer. The pastor and author Warren Wearsby said about that, division in the church always hinders prayer and robs the church of spiritual power. Their prayer was great because it was a prayer of great accord. Secondly, their prayer was great because of the acknowledgement of their prayer. The acknowledgement of their prayer. What do, did they acknowledge in their prayer? Notice in the second half of verse 24, they gave acknowledgement of God's person. It says in the second half of verse 24 that they said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Can I ask you tonight, when you pray, to whom do you pray? To whom do you pray? Do you pray to a God who's like the proverbial genie in the lamp? To, to a God who's 
like writing a, a letter to Santa Claus? Do you pray to a God who is a God of stone, of gold, of silver, of wood made of this earth, who has ears fashioned for him but cannot hear, who has hands fashioned for her but cannot do anything, has a mouth but cannot speak? Is that the kind of God that you pray to? If the Bible is true like we believe that it is, then we pray to a God who is all powerful do you know what it means to be all-powerful it means to be able to do anything that he chooses to do he's a god who is all-knowing there is nothing that god is unaware of nothing takes god by surprise nothing is outside of his purview Everything is visible and known to him. He's a God who's everywhere present at all times in the fullness of his being. He's a God who created all things that, that we see and that we don't see. He, he's a God who knows the end as well as the beginning and everything in between. He's a God who works all things to the fulfillment of his plans and purposes. We could go on and on describing our God. The word that is used here, Lord, is a word that is actually unusual to the New Testament. It's not found very regularly. This particular word translated Lord speaks of one whose power cannot be questioned. There's no questioning of his great power. And we pray to that one. He spoke the worlds into existence. When you approach him, do you acknowledge him for who he is? They gave acknowledgement of God's promises. Look at verses 25 through 27. We find here the early church repeating God's word to him. What are they doing here? This is an acknowledgement of God's promises. The early church practiced praying the word of God, repeating God's promises back to him. In, in these verses, the early church are reciting uh, a portion of Psalm 2. If you go back and study Psalm 2, what you'll find is, is the... The testimony of four voices speaking about, of, to God, and God himself speaking. And as God speaks, he recognizes that the kings and the authorities of the world have set themselves against him and against his Christ. But he is going to bring all things to the fulfillment of his promise. And the early church saw fulfillment of this even in their own experience. That's why they bring up Jesus appointed by God even even Herod the emperor of, of excuse me the king of the, the Judean area Pontius Pilate the governor under the emperor of Rome the Gentiles the people of Israel even gathered together against Jesus but what was going on what did they recognize verse 28 to do whatever God's counsel was through all of these can I use the word atheists? 
ones who did not believe in the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, God was bringing his plan, his purpose to fruition. True prayer, listen, is not me telling God what to do, but it's seeking God to show me what he wants me to do. True prayer is not about asking God uh, to get my will done in heaven so much as it's about God getting his will done on earth. The early church practiced prayer like this, and that's why they're praying the word of God. They're claiming the promises of God. Notice they also gave acknowledgement of God's providence. I've already touched on that. They recognize God's providential hand working even in the current situation they faced. They found themselves in a difficult situation. They've been commanded by Jesus to preach the gospel. They're being threatened by their leaders to stop. Otherwise, they'll face imprisonment and even death. They needed God's help. But they recognized that even in that situation, who was in control? Not the Sanhedrin, not the enemy behind all that was taking place, but they realized and admitted God was in control. And what does that do? When you and I recognize and acknowledge that God is in control, it releases fear. There's no cause for fear when we have that faith that God is in control, that he rules over all. It causes us to not need to fear. And then notice, if you would, thirdly, the, the asking of the great prayer. Verses 29 and 30. If you were the early church, what would you ask God to, do, to step in and do in this situation? Perhaps to take the Sanhedrin out of the way? to make a changing of the guard at the temple, you know, change out the high priest, to take the situation away. But that's not how the early church prayed. How did they pray? If you break down the prayer found in verses 29 and 30, what you find is they ask God for courage to endure. God, here's a difficulty we're facing they don't ask God to change it, to take it away. They ask God to give them courage to endure it. They ask God to give them boldness to speak. To speak what? The gospel, the word of God that he's commanded them. He asks, they ask him to give them power to serve. That wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. They wanted God to strengthen and help them through these things. They didn't ask God to deliver them. To change the Sanhedrin, to change the circumstances, but to strengthen them. One author said it this way, Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your power. Pray for power equal to your task that God has given you. And then we see God's answer in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spake the word of God with boldness. I've said before, don't focus your attention so much on the shaking of the house. It's easy to get caught up there. 
well, I just need to, I need to pray and we need to have a prayer meeting until the walls of the church building start shaking. That wasn't the important part. The important part was they were filled with the Holy Ghost and spake God's word with boldness. And that is what we need. Notice, if you would, not only their great prayer, we need to move on, but notice their great power. They saw their God coming through, and we see the experience of it in their life, not only through the great prayer, but also through the great power. Verse 33, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Friends, I believe with all my heart that what we need, and when I say we, I mean believers, need more than anything today in this world is great power to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel of our Savior. The early church saw their great God coming through, through the experience of great power. They were threatened, but God supplied them with exactly what they needed to go and proclaim the resurrection. I want to ask you, have you ever felt like you weren't up to a task? Have you ever been given something to do, something to do and you, you felt like you weren't up to it? You, you couldn't do what you were asked to do. Perhaps something was placed before you to undertake and you felt like you didn't have the skill or the ability to do it. Perhaps the reason for feeling like that was because of opposition you were facing or knew you would face. Is that ever spiritually true for you? I just can't do that for the Lord. I can't take that step. I can't obey in that way. Friends, remember, God will not ask you to do anything that he will not also provide for you to do what he asks you to do. God will always provide you with what you need to do what he asks you to do. Even as opposition grows, God will provide all that we need. He knows who and what we are, but he provides for us as we need he provided great power to the church, early church in answer to their prayer. They prayed for this, and God granted it. But notice also, he provided through this power for their peace. We see again that the unity of the early church was critical to God's blessing. With great power gave the apostles witness. It wasn't just one, it was all of them. To proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Their priorities. Notice the believers clearly had right priorities as demonstrated by their commitment to the gospel and their community. As a, a group of believers. And then if you would notice their perspective. Their perspective. The word gave here in this passage in verse 33 is an interesting word. It literally means to give back. It denotes that they were duty-bound. And so what we see going on here is that they consider themselves under obligation. All because of what God had done. They were under obligation to serve him, to give back to him for all that he had given them. Hold your place there, and I want you to see the example of this in the life of Paul. Quickly, Romans chapter 1. And notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Verse 
and verse number 14. He says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. I am a debtor. How is Paul a debtor? Paul considered himself under obligation to preach the gospel, not because all men had done something for him, but because of what God had done for him. I wonder if we have that same type of focus, that same type of understanding that our brothers and sisters in Christ in the early church did. And then notice, if you would, thirdly, they saw their great God coming through by the experience of their great prayer and great power, but also, if you would, notice, thirdly, great grace. Look at the end of verse number 33. It says, And great grace was upon them all. Great grace. grace is linked here with their witness of the resurrection that's how verse 33 begins isn't it they had great power to preach the resurrection of jesus and that shouldn't surprise us because the gospel is all about grace isn't it god giving undeserving men and women boys and girls what they don't deserve Notice the expression, or excuse me, the experience of grace. The experience of grace. What is the experience of grace in your life and mine? That that could be common to all of us. Salvation. What connects you and me with the first century Christians preaching in and around Jerusalem the grace of God that bringeth salvation to all men for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men that is what connects us with the early church is that grace Have you experienced God's grace in that way? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing you're a sinner, lost in your sin, condemned in your sin before a holy and just God, believing that Jesus came, lived the perfect life you can't, died the death you deserve, and rose again? To offer you redemption and justification. Have you believed in Jesus? If you have, then you have experienced God's grace. But notice, if you would, then not only the experience of grace, but what about the expression of grace? The expression of grace. You see, because the passage goes on to describe not what God did for them but what God did through them for each other. Why is that? You have heard me say so many times from this pulpit, if you are a recipient of God's grace, you should also be what? 
a reflector of God's grace. If you've been given God's grace, then you should also be a giver of God's grace. Because they had experienced the grace of God, the early church to one another expressed the grace of God. And how did that expression of grace come out in their community? One said it this way in verses 34 to 37, that the sharing described here is a particular sign of this grace at work among them. But the remarkable point is the implication that it was the powerful preaching of the gospel that motivated the earliest Christians to such generosity the gospel message about God's grace in Christ inspired a culture of self-giving in love. What takes place in verses 34 to 37 as we read? As the church grew, it attracted and many became part of the church from different backgrounds. Different social standings, different wealth levels. There were some within the early church who were wealthy, and there were some who were in poverty. What did, what did the church do in answer to this? And I want you to see in the text, it, it's an amazing thing, that the text does not tell us that the apostles led in this. The text doesn't tell us that, 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 that Apostle Peter got up on a Sunday and preached about generosity and how you who are wealthy need to give to those who aren't. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that the apostles organized a church ministry to get this accomplished. It simply says... That as God's grace was at work among them, those who had took note of those who did not. And they began to sell possessions and they brought it to the apostles for the apostles to distribute it as God gave direction and as the need was evident. And they began to look at things not as, well, this is mine and that's yours, but they began to look at things as this is ours. And I would submit to you that they saw it that way because they first and foremost said, this is God's. It belongs to him, and I'm going to use it in the way that he directs me to. I want you to remember, friends, again, that it's by his grace that we are saved. It's by his grace that we serve as he enables, equips, and empowers us. The Bible instructs us that we should ask for grace. Hebrews 4.16, accept his grace by faith and appropriate his grace. That is, his grace should influence our walk in this life. And in the early church, that was demonstrated through this generous giving to each other. I heard a testimony of a pastor that frankly it it blew me away because I'd never heard of this before. 
There was a, a young pastor many years ago, nearly 30 years ago, who was planting a church. And you can imagine in an early church plant, the, the church doesn't have a bank account with, a, with money sitting in it and is, is in a situation where the church itself is in need. Likely at that point, the pastor doesn't have some kind of a steady income from the church and all of those things. And as I listened to this testimony of this pastor, he shared about how during that first Sunday, there were about 40 people gathered. Most of them were people he knew. But he said that early in the service, a man walked in, and it seemed pretty evident that, that likely he was even a homeless man. And God spoke to this pastor's heart. And when it came time to do the traditional passing of the plate for, for the offering, here's what the pastor said. He said, as the offering plates are passed... Here's what we should do, how we should respond. If God has met your needs and you have plenty and, and you have all of your needs met, you have clothes to wear and food and shelter, then you should put in money as God directs you. If not all of your needs are met, if you don't have food to eat or, or a place to stay or good, nice clothes to wear, you can take out of the offering plate. I was blown away. I can't say I've ever been in a church where the pastor said, we're going to pass the plate, and if you need to take money out, go right ahead. But what a testimony of the type of grace that is seen right here in Acts chapter 4. Friends, can I ask you tonight, do you want to see God coming through? Do you want to be able to say, not just I know that I have a great God, but I've experienced that I have a great God. Because I've had the experience of great prayer. Prayer that God evidently hears and answers. Because I've had the experience of great power as God by his Holy Spirit moves in my life and uses me, uses the ministry, uses the church to spread the good news of Jesus that he died for us, but he didn't stay dead. He was buried and rose again. Because I've had the experience of great grace not only because God has poured out his grace in me, but because God has used me to be the instrument of his grace to somebody else. These are the experiences of the believer who not just has a head knowledge of a great God, but has known it by experience. And I hope and pray that that is what we all want for our lives, for our families, for our church.